Well, I did not grow up in a Bible-teaching church, and I became a follower of, of Jesus in a church in Manhattan, in New York City, where many of the people that went there had been raised in a Bible-teaching church, but it was not in New York City. They were from other parts of the country. Many of them were young professionals that were pursuing a career. Uh, they felt, you know, their, their companies maybe called them there or they decided that's where they wanted to work. You know, kind of that Frank Sinatra song, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Uh, others were aspiring actors and artists, and you know how that goes. A lot of them were uh, doing a lot of waiter and waitressing and just trying to make trying to make it in New York. And New York City, uh, for those of you who are watching from outside of uh, the area, you may not know this, New York City, in particular Manhattan, the, the outer boroughs are, are, have a lot more different cultures about them, but, but New York, the borough of Manhattan, there's five boroughs, there's four plus Staten Island, some people joke, but the, Manhattan is much more secular. What does that mean? Non-religious than the rest of the country. And it's sort of like, they're sort of like ahead of whatever you see in New York City is in some ways what it's going to be uh, in the rest of the country in a few years, except in fashion. There, you got to go out to LA to look for, for that. And many of those people that came from outside of New York to New York, to the church where I was at, and I'm a born and bred New Yorker, so I'm so used to that kind of stuff, uh, they felt like they were Daniel in Babylon, and they were just trying to survive their Christian life in New York City. Sadly, for many, I think it felt to them like a battle that couldn't be won, and the pressure was too great for them. A lot of them gave into the pressure. A lot of them just said, that's it, I'm out of this place. I, I can't take it anymore. Yet, when you study the book of Daniel carefully and you get your eyes off yourself and onto your situation and, 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 and onto, off yourself in your situation and onto the Lord, you'll see that it's a lot less about Daniel himself living in Babylon than you might think. And it's far more about what we've been talking about, the sovereignty of God. In other words, his control and his authority over history. And he proves it by telling us, God proves his control and his authority by telling us what's going to happen in the future through his prophets, and Daniel was a prophet. There's a very famous verse about the prophets in the Old Testament. Amos 3.7 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, some versions don't say his secrets. Some say his plans. Now, it's not to scare people. Well, sometimes it is to scare people, but really we, we should take great confidence in the fact that God knows what's going to happen. I also don't think it's for, for us to obsess over dates, although I know you can sell a lot of books and make some money by getting people to obsess over dates, but I'm not so sure that's what God uh, had intended in his prophetic visions that he gave to the prophets. But again, it is to give us confidence in God in what is the title of today's message is the stability of God's kingdom. God wants us to know that while the kingdom of man is most unstable, the kingdom of God is very, very, or kingdom of heaven is very, very stable. 
Now let's just recap a little. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken Daniel, who was a teenager, and three of his teenage friends and many other people captive from their home in Jerusalem and down to Babylon. Now let's just just break for a second and, and what they've been taken from. Jerusalem was the home of the temple of Yahweh. Jerusalem was supposed to be, let's call it a God-fearing city. And they were taken from this supposed to be God-fearing city down to pagan Babylon, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But the problem that Jerusalem and Judah, the southern part of Israel was, the northern part was just a shambles. They were already taken over by the Assyrians a hundred years earlier, were conquered by them, is that they were had fallen into, in, in so the southern part of Israel, in the Jerusalem area, into what we call, and it's been going on for a long time, the whole book of Judges is about it, is what we call syncretism. That they were mixing Yahwehism with other religions. So did, did you ever see, hear anybody say, well, I do read the Bible every day, and then I read my horoscope. All right, that's syncretism. That they're, they're, mixing, they're mixing faith in Jesus with something else. And, and, so, and then we saw last week that Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream, and that's where we find ourselves this week. So what, is there anything that's going on in the United States similar to that? Well, we cited a survey last week or the week before where less than 50% of people are now regularly attending church services or religious services at, at Christian churches, uh, temples, or mosques. So, so what is that what do we know is going on in Bible-believing churches? This is what we know is going on. We know that people are attending less often, particularly the younger people. And we know, and this is probably the scariest part of all, that the, churches, the people in the church are becoming more secular. Meaning, remember I said in Manhattan, they're very secular, they're not religious. The people who are attending the churches, being discipled by their cell phones six and a half days a week, are now also, okay, becoming more like the world than like the people of God. And so this is what we have to watch out for. Now, last week, after he had the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar asked the wise men to tell him his dream, and then he would say, and then, so tell me what it was, and then interpret it, or you're going to die. They said, no, 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 that's not the way it works, King. You have to tell us the dream, and we went to school to interpret dreams, right? We went to, you know, dream you Babylon. Uh, that was our major at, at the University of Babylon, dreams. And then you tell us what was going on. And he said, well, <laughs> I don't care what they taught you at the University of Babylon. I'm the king. And I, I, don't, I don't have to do anything you say. And, and you're going to have to tell me what the dream is. And they replied with what we called their theological conclusion was, only the gods could do this. Only, only the pagan gods can do this, and they don't live here on earth. We can't walk down the hallway, can't make an appointment with our teacher or our professor and ask them how to do this. Daniel, who was considered a wise man as well, but was not in that initial group, he asked Nebuchadnezzar for a little time and said, I, my God's going to tell me. He knew it. And then Daniel and his three teenage friends, who were also part of the wise men group, they prayed and God gave them the answer. 
So that brings us to verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, right here, we see the grace of God. I mean, we just see the fact that these wise men, these magicians, these astrologers, these pagan guys of Babylon, they're against Yahwehism. But God even wants to save their lives. Why? So they can come to faith and trust in him. You say, well, how's that going to happen? Because Daniel's there. Because his friends are there. Because God has allowed many people from Jerusalem to be taken prisoner there. Verse 25, then Arioch, remember he's the chief executioner, brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Now that's a lie. He didn't find him. Daniel came to him, right? But the fact that he's even saying that I found a man, you think he would go, hey, there's some guy outside who says he can do it. I don't know if he can or not. You want to hear anything from him? If not, we'll cut his head off. But somehow he seems to know of the integrity of Daniel. I don't know how. And so he says, I found a man of the captive of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, that's the the Babylonian name they gave him. And he says this. This is the king. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking to Daniel. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Uh, I'm sorry, but to me, my mind just, just raced to Pontius Pilate saying to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And, and so in a, in a somewhat of a similar way, Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able to make known? Like nobody else could. Remember we said that, that it appeared that uh, Daniel was on the junior varsity wizard team. And so he's like, the varsity guys couldn't do it. What makes you think that you can do it? Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, oh, sure, I can do this, man. I'm good. No, he doesn't say that at all. Now, remember, he prayed and God gave them the answer, but how does he know it's the right answer? I mean, how do you know when you pray for something that, it, that, it's, that it's the right answer? Well, one of the things I find a lot is if it's always what I want, it's usually not that I didn't, it's that I didn't hear God too carefully. A lot of times God is going to stretch me out of my comfort zone. And so Daniel, by faith, gets this answer from God, and then he's going to have to go tell him. He got that vision at night, if you recall. So he says, this is what he says. He said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. He said, these guys, you can call in as many as you want. They're not going to be able to do it. They're just not. They are, they are powerless. They are not going to be able to tell you what your dream was. Now, verse 28. Remember, their theological explanation was, hey, only the gods can do this. Verse 28 is Daniel's theological explanation, and I think really the big statement of chapter 2. He said this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets 
and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, I know he told this to you personally. What will be in the latter days your dream and the visions of, of your head upon your bed were these. Stop. So what does he say? He says, listen, there's a God in heaven. And he reveals secrets. He reveals the unknown. And he has personally made known to you this dream about the latter days, important term that we need to keep in the back of our mind for a second. And he says he knows you had this dream while you were thinking about this stuff when you were lying on your bed. So you weren't the only one in your room at that time. So after praying and praising the Lord for answering his prayers, which we looked at last week, Daniel goes to the chief executioner, of all people to go to, and he says, I need to speak to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, Arioch is like a lot of leaders. Uh, he's taking the credit for Daniel, if Daniel's right. He's taking the credit for the success of others. And usually, if you know anybody who likes to take the credit for the success of others, did you also notice they like to blame others for all the other mistakes? That's the way people are. Now, if any of you are bosses, if you're any of your bosses, please pay attention very carefully. Um, older people, I will never define those with numbers, older people are used to somebody else taking the credit for their work. All right? Younger people will not stand for it. They will not stand for it. I remember somebody took credit at a, at a, at a dinner for something my daughter had totally turned around her a, a department, and the CEO raised, called out upon the, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, head, the head of that whole area, and he stood up and took credit for the whole thing, and he didn't do any of it. My wife says to me, what do you think's going to happen? I can tell this story because she's coming to the next service, uh, my daughter. My, my, my wife said, what do you think is going to happen? And she said, she'll get her resume without in the week. So she thinks so? I said, oh, yeah, you do not do that to young people. I said, we're used, to, we're used to that. We're used to the boss taking credit for our work. You don't do that anymore. And you know what? They're right, by the way. They're right, by the way. You shouldn't take the credit for someone else's work. You should just say, you know, thank you so much, but let me really recognize the person who really did everything. You know, so many times people were writing me when the, when the pandemic broke out. Thank you so much for all the online stuff. I'm doing nothing different except looking at a camera. I just wrote back to everybody, Pastor John did everything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And you guys helped by feedback. So I... I didn't have any feedback. I'm up here yakking away. So I still have to, do the, I have to do the same stuff. So anyway, no charge for that advice. On the other hand, watch Daniel. Daniel gives credit where credit is due to the God of heaven. He says, I got the info from him. In this sense, Daniel is like Jesus. He is hearing from God 
Jesus said, I only tell you what the Father tells me. He's revealing the secrets of the kingdom, saving the lives of people by being willing to lay down his life for others. There's another thing that's going on here that we have to really understand and what's behind the scenes. Daniel is basically telling Nebuchadnezzar that your religion is powerless. In other words, you, you, have, you have strayed from the creator, okay, and what you want from your gods is impossible. And it's so important that God has decided to come and speak to you personally about it. He has reached down to you. And that's what we always say the difference between Christianity and other religions are. Other religions are men and women trying to reach God. Christianity is very different. Biblical Christianity is God reaching down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Daniel is also uh, preaching to us that, that certain things that happen in our lives we have no control over. He's, he's reminding us that we, we may have certain expectations or, or certain dreams, and, and, and we can't control them. How many of you are anxious about the future? Most people are. Why? Because we can't control it. We don't know anything about what's coming but God does. So Daniel speaks of the latter days, a, a common Old Testament term for, for prophecy where God shows his sovereignty. And interesting that uh, a lot of times in prophecy you have a partial fulfillment and a complete fulfillment. And, and we, we use the illustration a lot of times, speaking of Manhattan, you're driving towards Manhattan and it, it looks like one big glob of buildings, especially when you come over Route 3 in Clifton. It looks like one big glob of buildings. And then as you get closer, you realize there's separation. So a lot of times what happens is in prophecy is you just think of one building and then what they look like from far away, they look like one building, but then you realize there's two and there's something in between. That's the way a lot of prophecy works. There's an immediate fulfillment or a partial, and then there's a late one that comes later on. The classic is, which people didn't have any idea about until they got to see it like we do in the rearview mirror, is that Jesus would come twice, that the Messiah would come twice, the first coming and the second coming. So we're living in the in-between time. In the New Testament, it says this, Daniel, in being in the Old Testament, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, says, God, who at various times in his various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, like Daniel, has in these last days, what's the last days? The days in between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. People said, show us the Father. He goes, hey, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, 
through whom he also made the worlds. So Jesus reveals the heart and the mission of God the Father to us. Jesus reveals the mission of the kingdom of God to us, and it's what we call the good news and the gospel. So he's really actually somewhat running through it with Nebuchadnezzar right now, even though Jesus won't be born for another 600 years. He's saying there is a God in heaven. There is a creator. It's not your gods. There is one God. And Nebuchadnezzar, your dream, as we're going to get to in a couple minutes, your dream, all the wars you've been in, the, the savagery that you have been doing is a perfect example of God creating the world for us to really be like him. But the way you live, the way Babylon is, is a perfect example that the world has gone sideways. It, it's gone completely sideways. And so what did God do? God reached down personally to the world in Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to experience that, but he's experiencing God reaching to him personally. And the good news is that although the world is unstable, anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be made from this old creation sort of part of the world gone wrong into a new creation in Jesus Christ and you will be part of the new heavens and new earth that God brings into existence in the latter of the latter days. So Daniel is a what we would call a prisoner of war. war. Yes, he models for us speaking without fear like Jesus. I mean, if he gets one little thing wrong, Nebuchadnezzar might take off his head, but he stares down death. Why? Because of his faith in the God of heaven. For, for Daniel, and hopefully for us as well, the good news of the stability of the God of heaven holds more weight than the bad news that surrounds us on earth. We live in a, in, a, in a sinful world. Just picture sin as sort of being like what sin did to the earth is sort of like if you had a, a, a earthquake, a tsunami, a hurricane, a tornado, <laughs> and a blizzard all at the same time. It's just that's what it did to the, to the world. And Daniel wants us to see this, very important, that we can walk into the future with the God of heaven, and we can face uncertainty with hope and without fear. So you, you watch the news, and if you're like me, I watch it, and I'm like, oh, wow. And then I just go, God, it's going to be interesting to see how you fix this one. It's going to be really, really interesting. Verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. So he says, I know you're on your bed. You were, God told me you were on your bed. You were thinking about the future. 
And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. He's actually made it known to you personally. You just can't figure it out. That, that, that's part of why we, we come to study the Bible, is that, is that we read it and we're like, we can't figure it out. And then we actually, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're sitting and you're concentrating. That's a big difference between actually being in the building and no guilt to anybody watching online unless you're really zoned in. There's a big difference, at least I know it is for me, between sitting in the building and, and, and watching online because I tend to do other stuff. And then I'm rewinding. And, and to listen to some guy talk for an hour or some woman talk for an hour, it takes me three hours because of all the times I had to rewind because I missed everything. I'm like, why do I do this? So he says, he's made known to you personally what's going to be, but, but you haven't figured it out. Verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. Listen, don't, don't, don't think I'm Mr. Smart Guy. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Welcome, welcome to being a pastor. This is what I pray all the time. I'm like, God, I don't... I, I, I want to make this known to them. Right? Thank you for what you've shown me in my, my preparation time, but I want to make this known to them. So he's talking with Nebuchadnezzar. And I imagine Arioch, the, the chief executioner, would have just said this to him, kid, come here, come here. Just get in there, tell them the dream, and get out. Okay? But, but not Daniel... He's like, no, 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 man. I'm going to tell him about the Lord. It's almost like Daniel saying, Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord knew what was on your heart. And he also knew that you needed a guy like me to tell you about him. Application. Don't miss this. If the person next to you is sleeping, elbow him and wake him up. Wherever God has placed you, never, never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever forget that God has sovereignly placed you there for your voice and for your life to represent him. Don't forget that. That's why Daniel is there. I could just imagine him sitting there going, this is all making sense to me now. Maybe you're in a tough situation in your life right now. Well, you know what's coming next? Probably placement in a place where God has put, is going to put you to be his representative, to be his voice. Followers of Jesus are called to serve the king, but King Jesus, not Nebuchadnezzar, in humility. And that will be made all the more possible when we see 
the greatness of our God and the intense love of our God as we stand at the foot of the cross. Because when we stand at the foot of the cross, we feel very, very small in a very big way. (laughs) We stand there, we feel small compared to Jesus, but our heart, what happens? It grinchifies. (laughs) He's making up words again. Our heart grows like the Grinch as we see him dying for us. Verse 31 Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream. He says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Wow, Daniel uses the word awesome. So it seems to be like there's this, he, his dream was this massive statue, and it was really bright. Now, here's the description of this image, of this statue. The image head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So so interesting. It's top heavy. If, if, If the feet are iron and clay, clay would not be something that would be able to hold all those metals on top. So it's It's top-heavy and fragile. When we get to chapter 7, we'll learn more about this. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. You're trying to say, I'm trying to picture all this. Well, if if you are in a community group, we have an artist's rendition of what this might look like. (laughs) If not, pilfer one of those papers on the way out. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed together, so the whole thing comes down, and became like chaff, that's the part that would blow in the wind when they were, during harvest, from the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away, so that no trace of them was found. So they're gone, and the stone that struck the image became, the stone's not gone, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a relatively new king and no doubt suffering from the insecurities that that brings. And perhaps as he's thinking about this, he's going in and out of sleep and just kind of having these dreams of insecurity reflecting his fears. Now, um, these feelings and these fears and these dreams made him erratic And sound reasoning, which is important for any kind of a leader. Man, some of you know what it's like to serve under a boss or a leader whose feelings or emotions are very erratic. It's not easy. You don't like which which boss am I gonna see meet? Who's coming in today? You know, what's it gonna be like? And so sound reasoning has left him. Now, one thing very important to remember, we uh, sometimes talk certain ways about the rich people in our culture, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is super rich. Remember, we said last time, if you, have, 
If you have astrologers and magicians and, you know, dream interpreters on the payroll, you got some bucks. See, super rich, and he reminds us that virtually everybody has some anxiety about the future. So if you had, you know, $5 billion, you'd think, I'd have no worries. I think you would. You'd worry about losing your money. You'd worry about losing your money. So we come to verse 36. He says, this is the dream. He, he says, Nebuchadnezzar must be like, okay, here we go. Get, get your, sharpen your sword because I'm going to kill this kid if he's wrong. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation before the king. You, king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Now, when we think of the word kingdom, we, we always think of old movies and stuff like that. We, might, we would probably better use the word empire, but they use the word kingdom. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom or an empire, power, strength, and glory. Now, that's a very risky statement. That's a very risky statement. He goes, he looks at him and goes, you know this vast empire you have? You didn't do any of it. <laughs> and we saw in the first week that he had just defeated the Egyptians, the other world superpower, and it was because God did it. He said, you didn't do any of this. God gave this to you. And he said, and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a true sovereign king. The, the other, some of the other empires that are going to follow are going to be very different in structure. But, but he was a true sovereign king. There was, there was no real advisors or stuff like that. It was kind of like, you know, my way goes. I'll get some, you know, dream interpreters, but that's the way it goes. Verse 39, but after you, oh, by the way, you're going to die or you're going to experience something negative, but after you shall arise another kingdom. Remember, it was made of silver inferior to yours than a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So it's interesting, again, the, 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 we're, we're going down in value of the metals, but yet the kingdoms that are following him are getting bigger. That's why I think he's gold, because he's a true sovereign. And so only kingdom number two and three are barely mentioned. It becomes pretty obvious as we go along that that's going to re refer to the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. Um, all kinds of theories on the value of the metals decreasing, but the strengths of the metals increasing. Um, we'll get into that later on in the book. We want to be careful not to miss the point. Verse 40 brings us to the fourth kingdom. Now, th this... This kingdom is a bit more, this empire is a bit more complicated, but is, is very important. Verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay 
and partly of iron. So just picture toes. That's, that's the, your toes really keep you standing. Did you know that? They really keep you standing. But the toes are mixed of iron and clay. Does that sound very stable? It's not very stable. Verse 42, And the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so that the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. That's going to be what results in its downfall. Verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So he says this kingdom will not hold together. It's going to be powerful, but there's going to be things that happen to it that's just going to cause it to fall apart. Now, a lot of people think this is the Roman Empire, Depending upon how you date it, the Roman Empire could last anywhere from 1400, from 400 years or 500 years to throw another thousand on top of it. So people date the, the age of the Roman Empire very, very differently. So these kingdoms exemplify humanity. We can make great progress in certain things, but we can't get along, can we? We can't get along. Ver- verse 39 gives a big comment on this. He says, but after you. In other words, your kingdom won't last. The reason your kingdom won't last, the reason your empire won't last, is no kingdoms last. No empires last. Why? Because the kingdom of man is unstable. That's why it doesn't last. So what do these kingdoms have in common? a desire to rule and reign and crush anyone that will get in their way, yet in some sense they all have feet of clay, which means that all kingdoms, all empires will rise and fall. They won't last, and history certainly bears that out. That's why the kingdom of heaven enters into the chaos of this world in the person of Jesus Christ to bring hope to what is often a hopeless world. And what he's getting at with Nebuchadnezzar is this. We don't need a better statue. We need a better king. That's the problem, a stable one, not a power-hungry king, a godly king, and his name is King Jesus. Now, there's, this might be the Roman Empire, this fourth kingdom, this fourth empire, but the confusion over it being the Roman Empire comes with the, the mixed toes so some people think it's um, in the future, that this kingdom hasn't come yet. That's why a few years back, when you saw the European Union coming together, the prophecy buff said, up, oh, here we go, buckle up. Here comes the ten-toed kingdom. <laughs> Even though there was 22 of them. <laughs> here they come. Somehow we're going to get there, and, and that possibly could be. Verse 44, we get to Daniel's theological picture of the future, 
Uh, and honestly, if you're really in tune with what's going on right now, this will get you out of bed in the morning. It really will. Verse 44, and, the days of these, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So God, this time, God of heaven says, okay, seen enough, I'm gonna set up a kingdom. But his kingdom will be very different. Why? He tells us. Which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, take that verse, verse 44, circle it in your Bible, write it in your notes, text it to yourself right now, tell somebody to remind you of it later, and go home, and this week, I want you to really, really meditate on it. That God is setting up a kingdom it will never be destroyed. He's not going to leave it to other people. He's going to make sure that it's not destroyed. It's going to consume all of the other empires. So you're not going to have to worry about threats from the outside. And it shall stand forever. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king, to you, Nebuchadnezzar, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. This verse right here, or these verses right here, show us what the dream has been pointing to all along. The fifth kingdom. And that is what he is getting at in this chapter. The indestructible, everlasting kingdom of God. Now, some people believe, remember I said they believe it's the Roman Empire, so some people believe it's the first uh, coming of Jesus Christ. So I think about that, and I think, well... That is a bit disappointing in some ways. The other empires don't seem to have been destroyed. And I don't know where the ten-toed dude is. So that seems a little difficult for me. Others say it refers to the second coming, which has totally created the conspiracy theory business, <laughs> of which YouTube is greatly expanding it. <laughs> and... Um, but it should create what I spoke about at a funeral the other night. It should create in us what, we, what Paul told Titus is the blessed hope. Is, is we, are, we are waiting for this kingdom to be set up. So is, it, is, is this the first coming of Jesus or the second coming? Well, it, we know Jesus came. Yet, you could say, maybe not all of this has yet been fulfilled. So, I'm going to take a different path. I'll let those who want to argue, first it was the first coming, and those who want to argue it's the second coming, I'll let both sides hate me, and I'll say, I think it's actually both. 
it's actually both. Now, the reason I do is I'm going to blame it all on Jesus, which we'll see in a minute. But also, because of, by believing in both, the, the, what we talked about last week, the gospel-driven ministry that right now we are studying this book in preparation for probably the greatest opportunity in our lifetime that is about to come upon us. It's here, but it's really going to come upon us when things really open up. That, that by taking the view that both are in view, it calls us to, to what Jesus has called followers of him to do. I'm going to fast forward you 600 years to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says this, it says this in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He's been out doing miracles. He comes home. You know, oh boy, local boy makes good. They didn't like him after he was done saying this, but... And as he, his custom was, he went to the synagogue, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So what did Jesus do every Saturday? He went to synagogue. What would he have done if he lived now? What would he have done every Sunday morning? He would have went to church. Not 1.7 times a month. He would have went to church. Verse 17, he's the guest of honor. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. They just happened to be in that, Jesus, hey, we just happened to be in this passage this day. Here you go. Want to read some of it to us? This is God's sovereignty. God knew he was going to be there this day. Now, Isaiah wrote 100 years before Daniel. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he starts to read for them from what is in our Bibles, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads what Isaiah said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, This is 700 years earlier than Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now stop right there. Again, write that down. Luke 4, 18 That's the mission we're called to. You can look at it from a physical aspect and you can look at it from a spiritual aspect. Verse 19. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your 
hearing. That's why I think that he's talking, Daniel's talking about the first coming. Now, we have to think a little bit here um, of the, the correlation between Luke, him reading what's in Luke, and what actually took place in Isaiah. Luke 4.18 and Isaiah 61.1 are basically identical, different languages. That's why you get them to be a little bit different. However, let's draw attention to what Jesus said in verse 19 and what Isaiah said in chapter 61, verse 2. Are we able to get that up there? Okay. So we need to go back to verse 19. Do we have that? We'll just use there. Jesus says in the temple, in the synagogue, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops. Now let's go 700 years earlier to Isaiah 61.2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Stop right there. That's identical, right? But look how the verse continues. Isaiah continues. Keep continue. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's the second coming. So Jesus stops in the, in the middle of the verse and says, I came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and I will come back again for the day of vengeance. I have come, verse 18 and verse 1 from Isaiah, as a savior, but I will come again as a judge. This, to me, helps me so much to stop worrying about the instability of the world and trust in the stability of God's kingdom and its plan. It's very easy to fall into the trap, the fearful trap, of worrying where the world is going. But the Lord knows. That's why, as we learned years ago in the book of Philippians, we trade our worry for, for prayer. That's what we do. When we worry, we pray. Because God knows what's going on. So throughout the word of God, we're told, throughout the Bible, we're told about the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Picture it as those two buildings in Manhattan, but here it refers to, it says that, uh, that it's going to be a, a stones coming out of a mountain made without hands. So just picture this. This is Jesus is the mountain, often referred to as the rock or the stone. We are living in between the two mountains, the first coming and the second coming. To be honest, <laughs> we live in our own shakable kingdoms, don't we? But we walk in the valley 
in between the two mountains of the first coming and the second coming by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because though we live in our own world of uncertainty, we are called to walk towards the unshakable kingdom. And we don't walk alone. We walk with King Jesus. Now, this is something I had to deal with all week, and so now I'm going to let you deal with it. And I'm not done dealing with it, or I should say God dealing with me on it. Which kingdom am I building? Am I building a kingdom that will be crushed? Or am I building a kingdom that will be eternal? History alone shows us how unstable and how temporary the kingdom of man is. And all man-made empires eventually die. Yet in Daniel chapter 2 verse 45 tells us of this stone that will come, this, this kingdom that will crush all of the world empires. And the Bible is crystal clear that stone is Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 20, verse 17 and 18. Then he looked at them and said, What then, Jesus said, What then is this that is written? And he's quoting from Psalm 118. There's a lot of other stuff in Psalm 2, but we don't have time today. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. When they would build a building, they would have this cornerstone. That would be sort of the thing that held everything together. And he's telling the, the religious people, listen, I am, the, I am the chief cornerstone. I am the one who holds everything together, and you rejected me. The builders rejected Verse 18, he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. If you're not a follower of Jesus, <laughs> 33 years ago, I can't, I can't get over it, man. And in a good way. That is your invitation to go to heaven. To, to, to be broken and to fall into Jesus' arms. That's it right there. Let, let the holiness of God fall on you and, and let it break you. And you will be part of this eternal kingdom. You will never be the same. Never. Listen, I am not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be. And many of you can say the same thing. But on whomever it falls, for those who wait too long, that's what he's saying. You didn't take the invitation. 
You were too proud to be broken by me. You were too proud. You, you rejected the, 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 cor- the, the, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and your whole life, your whole building is just going to collapse, but whoever it falls, it will grind into powder. Like Daniel said, it will be crushed. So Jesus will not only crush oppressive empires, he will crush the source. And what is the source of oppressive empires? It is the same source of sin. It is self-rule. The religious leader said to Jesus, we will not have this man rule over us. And today, they live in hell. If your identity is outside of the creator, you will be crushed. If today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can choose to be part of God's kingdom that will never be destroyed because his kingdom has already and continues to defeat death. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our self-rule. Jesus died on the cross for our failure to follow God, for our snubbing the kingdom of God. That's why he died on the cross. But then he rose from the dead, offering that to you and to me, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, if you will just put your trust in him. It's a simple choice, really, between refusing his kingdom or rejecting his kingdom and remaining in the unstable kingdom of man or receiving his kingdom, a stable kingdom and an eternal one. So let me ask you, which do you choose? Has God revealed to you today the destiny of mankind, what it will be, if he has, and you've seen it. You're a follower of Jesus today. Commit to live the rest of your life following Jesus all the way to that kingdom. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, call upon him right now. As broken as you might be, and say, today is the day I want to trust in you because I want to be part of your stable kingdom for the rest of my life and for all eternity. Well, let's stand and pray.